If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're still continuing in our study of Hebrews, and we're here now in chapter 2, and we'll begin reading and studying in verses 10, and we'll be going all the way through to verse 18. So again, it's Hebrews chapter 2, 2 verse 10. Hebrews 2 verse 10. Hear now the voice of the Lord through the reading of His living and active Word. Verse 10. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children of whom God has given to me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all of their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Amen. And bow with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Father, oh, what deep and profound love that you would give to us your only Son, who would by his own accord offer up his life to save and to bring many sons to glory. As we turn our attentions now to your word preached and your word received, we do now pray and ask that by your Spirit you would do a mighty work in this place, Renew and encourage the saints. Melt hardened hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Illumine the eyes of the hearts of unbelief in this room this night. That the deity and the humanity of our dear Savior Jesus Christ would be clearly seen. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. To quickly review... The primary concern and the main message of this epistle, Hebrews, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As chapter 1 focuses on the qualifications of the Son, chapter 2 focuses on the admonition of the saints and the exposition of the Son. As chapter 1 highlights the deity of the Son, chapter 2 highlights the humanity of the Son. And while chapter 1 focuses on the who question, the the who the Son of God is, chapter 2 focuses on the why question, the why of why did the Son of Man become, or rather the Son of God become the Son of Man? Why did the God of this universe, the one who created, and even at this very moment who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who is the radiance and the express image, why did this God-man find it fitting and why did he find it necessary to come and to condescend into the likeness of man? Or to put it more simply, why did the Creator become creature? And this is where we get into the heart of this chapter. Last week, if you remember... We establish that the theme of chapter 2 is this. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men 
namely us, might become the Son of God or sons of God. Let me say that again. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. In our previous study, much of our time was devoted to dealing with that one question. What does the four, in verse 5, if you look at verse 5, what does the four here mean? What is it referring to and how do we make sense of it? How does verses 1 through 4 bridge itself to verse 5? What's the connection here? In other words, we read in verses 1 through 4 the admonitions given to us as Christians, the admonitions, pay close attention to what you have heard. Do not drift away. Do not neglect so great a salvation. Why? What's the cause here? What's the reason? Verse 5, for, because, God did not subject to angels the world to come. Huh. And this is where we came to a halt. This is the question that we kept coming back to and the question that we had to keep digging deeper and deeper into to figure out why God, not subjecting to angels the world to come, how that promise, how that truth is to then compel us and move us and fuel us or fuel our excitement as believers so that we would give greater heed to God's word, so that we would not drift away so that we would not neglect so great a salvation in Christ Jesus. And the way the writer of Hebrews goes about answering this very question is by directing us to Psalm 8, if you remember. A psalm that highlights and celebrates man as originally created by God. And the main point that's being communicated is that We're to not neglect so great a salvation because we're to rule as God's vice regents. It's because we've been crowned with glory and honor, subjugating all things put under our feet by the power of God. And you hear that and you take that and you let it sink in and you say, wow, that's really good news. I like that. I like the sound of that. Sounds good. I want to rule as God's vice regent. I want to rule and reign over God's creation. I like that. But then reality quickly comes into view and we begin to realize, well, if we're to rule and if we're to subjugate all things, why does it feel like more often than not I'm the one being subjugated? If we're to rule and subjugate all things, why does it feel like I'm the one who's subjected many of the times? Because, verse 8, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin, we die. Because of sin, we suffer. We see sickness everywhere. We see cancer and divorce and abortion. We see depression and murder and death. So where's the good news here? What am I... What am I supposed to get out of all of this? What am I supposed to see? Verse 9. But we see who? Jesus. But we see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels so that through suffering he might be crowned with glory and honor. For what purpose? so that he might go on ahead into glory as humanity's forerunner, as humanity's captain, the author of our salvation, so that he might put death to death and bring many sons to glory. In other words, Jesus, as humanity's forerunner, blazed a path for all of mankind who are condemned in sin. A trail of salvation in which many sons could then be brought into glory okay we see that we see jesus now what about jesus and this is where we find ourselves now today in verse 10 now if you're like me after reading our passage together a few moments ago you might have thought to yourself there is a lot of meat here there's a lot of information here which i agree 
And I was intimidated when I studied this. Knowing that, if there's any lingering thoughts or questions, I want you to feel free to hold on to that question and come and find me after service and to discuss your question. But with such a heavy passage in view now, I tried my best to simplify this text by breaking everything down into one single question, which will then be answered by three reasons. And this will serve as our outline for today. And so here it is. The overarching question of our passage now, the question that we'll be answering is this. Why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? Again, let me say that question again. Why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? And the three reasons for why, which will serve as our outline for tonight, are these three. First, to suffer, verses 10 to 13. Second, to die, verses 14 to 16. And lastly, third, to propitiate, verses 17 to 18. So again, why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? First, to suffer, to die, to propitiate. First, the Son of God became the Son of Man to suffer. Look at verse 10 with me. We read here again. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren the word that we find here in verse 10 that is both marvelous and yet still very shocking is the word fitting it was fitting or proper it was right in other words for Jesus to suffer. And the reason for why this word is so unsettling to us is because in the typical human mind, in, in the typical way of thinking in the human mind, suffering and perfection don't go hand in hand. It doesn't belong in the same sentence. And so the question that presents itself right in front of our faces as we read this is, how is it and why is it fitting that the author of salvation, as he leads many sons to glory, how and why is it fitting that he be perfected through suffering and not in any other way? Why is that? Why did it have to be specifically through suffering? And to make things even more complicated, why was it that Jesus had to be made perfect? You see that? I can imagine some of your ears as we read this and as you're hearing this perhaps for the first time, your ears perk up a little bit. You might be thinking to yourselves, I thought Jesus was already perfect. I thought the whole point of chapter 1 was that Jesus is God. If God the Father is perfect, then shouldn't God the Son be perfect as well? So what are you trying to say here, Mr. Writer of Hebrews? What do you mean that Jesus had to be made perfect? Is there a contradiction here? No. So how do we make sense of this? What does it mean that Jesus had to be made perfect? And why did Jesus have to suffer to be made perfect? Now if you're in the hermeneutics class or if you've been here long enough, you know that we often say around here that the best commentary of Scripture is Scripture. And the Word of God is best clarified and unpacked by the Word of God. So in understanding why Jesus had to suffer to be made perfect, we read very similarly in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it out for you. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we read this. Though He, Jesus, though He was a Son... Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Meaning, for the Son of God to be the forerunner or the author of eternal life on behalf of us, on behalf of sinners, it was fitting, it was 
necessary that Jesus suffered. One commentator, he puts it like this. The language of perfecting has the connotation of consecrating. In the very same way that priests in the temple perfected or consecrated themselves for service before God on behalf of the people, cleansing their bodies and donning priestly clothes. This to say that it's through suffering that Jesus equipped upon himself his office as the Redeemer. Jesus equipped himself for his office as the Redeemer. It's as if God qualified Jesus to come before him as the high priest, wearing his robes made with the threads of suffering. So again, why was it fitting that Jesus suffered? Here's the answer. To permit him as the high priest to accomplish his redemptive mission to save sinners. In other words, Jesus was perfected not in his character. He doesn't change. He's God. But he was perfected in his office as the Son of God. Jesus did not need to suffer for his own salvation. I think we all know that. But he needed to suffer for ours. Jesus didn't need to suffer to perfect himself, but he needed to suffer to perfect you and me. To save you and me. And to bring you and me and many sons into glory. Now friends, especially unbelievers here with us tonight, it needs to be understood that it's through this suffering of Christ that we observe the greatest and the clearest examples of love known and demonstrated to man. As I was preparing and studying this passage this week, <clears throat> I was reminded of a conversation that I once had with a coworker many years ago now. And I remember that he told me that he couldn't belong to a religion. He couldn't even begin to imagine worshiping a God, a God who would even dare think about killing his own son. The idea of a God who would willingly slay, willingly lay down his own son was just so repulsive and so disgusting, disgusting to him that he, I remember he just started getting angry at it. He said, how can he trust, how can he believe in a God who would offer up his own son? And I understood at that moment Perhaps he was angry because he himself was a dad of a young son. But what my friend failed to recognize that very day was that the driving force, the reason for why the son would offer up his own life was not because God hated him. It wasn't because God didn't have a need for him. It wasn't because God didn't love his own son. He's not a masochist, but it's this. It's because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was the love of God that drove Christ to the cross. What my friend failed to realize that day and what we all need to realize right now is that it's through suffering, through the crucifixion, through the death of the Son of God, that we might be saved and reconciled to God. The failure to recognize the necessity, the fittingness of Jesus' suffering, fails to recognize the height and the depth and the length and the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Hence, the reason for why Augustine, the patristic Augustine, wrote, the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. Because it was through the suffering of the Son, reaching its zenith upon the cross, where God revealed to all of his creation his love to an infinite degree. That he would give his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 
in leading many sons to glory through his suffering, it was fitting that the captain of our salvation to experience what we experience so that he might succeed where we've all failed. As the divine forerunner, Jesus needed to succeed for us what we failed to do, namely obedience. And it was through this suffering, being made perfect through this suffering, that Christ adopts us into his family as his brethren. Verse 11. He adopts us as his brethren. Now I want you to notice here in verse 11, we're not his brothers or sisters with Christ. We're not the brothers with Christ, or we're not brothers with Christ, because we're the children of God. But rather, we see here, that we're the children of God because Jesus is our elder brother. Now, there's a massive distinction here. It's not the same thing. We read in Ephesians 1.5, God having predestined us to adoption as sons by who? By Jesus Christ to himself. Meaning, we're brought into and adopted into the family of God. We reap the eternal benefits of being sons and daughters of God. Not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who we are in Christ. Hence the reason for why we read in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Those who are being sanctified are unified in the one who's doing the sanctifying. And so it's in this union in Christ that believers are brought into the family of God. Now, there are two distinguishable characteristics that Hebrews points out to us on what this new family in Christ is to look like. First, and very simply, this new family, this brotherhood, if you will, is first, in verse 10, destined for glory in bringing many sons to glory. We we read that. Which is to say that the goal of the Christian life And the destination in which every believer in Christ are headed toward is glory. It's not if. It's not hopefully. It's not I hope, I wish. It's not potentially. But it's a fact that he will bring many sons to glory. So there's great hope and there's great surety to be found here for those of you who have Jesus as your elder brother. Second, and essentially the same point as the first, we read here in verse 11 that for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Now some of your translations might say one God or one Father, but what we literally find here in the Greek is the word one, meaning we are of one, and if I can say one source. It's a language of familial unity. This to say, if Jesus is the Son of God, and if Jesus is our elder brother, then we, by right, are the children of God. We belong to the family of God. Or in the language of John 1.13, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And just as every family has certain distinguishable characteristics or reputations, While some families are known for its wealth, while some are known for its dishonesty, some for its achievements and others for its infidelity, the distinguishing mark of the family of God is this. Holiness. Holiness. This means that Christians are to be about the business of becoming holy. In other words, to be in Christ is to be like Christ. In the words of Dr or the great Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he writes, if God is your father and Christ is your elderly brother, you must be special. You cannot help but be special. If the divine nature is in you and he has entered into you through the Holy Spirit, you cannot be like anybody else but Christ. Lastly, beloved, what a 
What a humbling and what a sobering thing it is to know at the end of verse 11 that our elder brother Jesus, as we read here, is not ashamed to call us his brethren. It was and could have only been through the suffering of Christ which enabled us to be his brothers. Now, how do we know this? Because if we go back and if we read the Gospels and if you ever noticed, it's only after his suffering, after his crucifixion, after his death and resurrection that Jesus then began to refer his, to his disciples as what? My brothers. After his death, he looks to his disciples. He says, my brothers. The Son of God became the Son of Man to suffer. To be made perfect through suffering. To save us, to mold us, and to adopt us as his brethren. Now moving on to our second point. The Son of God became the Son of Man to die. We read here in verse 14. Let's read it again. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he did not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, what we find here in these verses is a very clear flow of thought on why the Son of God became the Son of Man. Because God the Son is God, or as Hebrews seven sixteen states, because he has an endless or an indestructible life, it was then fitting, it was then necessary for the Son of God to partake of himself flesh and blood, or in other words, to take upon himself humanity, for what reason? Middle of verse 14. To die. To state it bluntly. You can't die if you're God. So Christ had to make himself, and if I can put it this way, he had to make himself diable. The Son of God took upon himself human nature so that he can be put to death. So that in and through his death, verse 14, that he might destroy the one who had the power of death, namely the devil, and to release those in bondage to the fear of death. Now the immediate question, a paradox of sort that comes to our minds is, how does the death of Christ result in the defeat of the one who is the prince of death, the devil? What does and what does it mean in how do we make sense of this dynamic that's presented right here, right in front of us? Or perhaps another way to ask is, how does the death of Christ put to death the one who had the power of death? Not over death, but the power of death. Now why do I say it like that? The reason why I say the power of death and not over death is because as we consider this question, it's important for us to recognize that the power that the devil holds in death is only second, secondary to that of God's. Death is no doubt a dark reality of the devil's tyranny, but it is God alone who holds supreme authority and power over both life and death. So again, what does it mean for the devil to hold the power of death? And how is he wielding that power over man? There's only one lethal weapon that Satan holds in his artillery. Let me say that again so you understand this very clearly. Because we live in a culture that likes to blame everything that we do, every wrong that we do, every evil, every mistake, every failure on the devil. So we need to get this right. There's only one lethal weapon that Satan holds in his artillery, and it's your sin. Which is to say that no one goes to hell by being tempted by the devil. No one goes to hell by being harassed by the devil. No one goes to hell by being oppressed or being possessed by the devil. But the sole reason for why men go to hell is unforgiven sin. Satan only has one way to keep you in hell, and that's to keep you from God, and that's it. All he can do 
as he's often referred to as the accuser, is point his finger at you and say, but look at you. Look at you. You're a sinner. You'll never be good enough. Don't you remember that one thing that you did last month, last year? Whispers in your ear. Don't you remember that? How can God love someone like you? And all he does is spew out lies over and over again, accusing you. Sure, he can kill you. Sure, he can beat you up, as we've often seen in the gospel narratives and in in the book of Revelation. But this passage isn't saying that Satan no longer has the ability to make you sick or make you hurt or make you dead. But what is being communicated here is that the one who had the power of death to destroy you no longer has that power. Why? Because the Son of God became the Son of Man to die. And that to die, to satisfy the law and to free you from the power and the grip of sin and death. Beloved friends, though the devil is said to hold the power of death, oh, what a thing it is to know as the saints of God and to recognize that true power of death and life resides in our Savior, in our Heavenly Father. Though the devil wields for a moment the power of death, we rejoice in the fact that we look to the Son of God who sovereignly holds the power over death eternally in His very hands. We find great comfort in knowing that the power in which the evil one holds is the very same power by which he will be destroyed and is destroyed. And that in the death of Jesus. It is through the death of Christ that he puts to death the power of death. John Calvin, he writes, Our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. And this is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. We must, above all else, remember this substitution. Why? Lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout our whole lives. It is to this death, to the death of Jesus Christ that we look to, that then frees us. It frees us and releases us, verse 15, from the bondage of the fear of death. Now, the death that man fears is not just the physical death that comes, but the eternal second death that's to follow. Eternal judgment, Hebrews 9.27, eternal judgment that's to come. And the great remedy that we find here in this passage that liberates us from such a fear of death and its bondage is not that we just look to Christ, which is true, but more specifically, we look to his death. Because it's in the death of Christ where we find the devil and his power of death rendered useless. So much so that while Satan points his finger at you and accuses and he says to you, you're a sinner, you're an adulterer, you're a liar, you're a cheater, you're a fornicator, you're this and that and so on and so on, you can look at Satan right in his face and you can say with full assurance, oh death, Where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? It's gone. It's gone. The fear of death is gone. Why? Because it's been paid for. Because it's been conquered in the death of Jesus. Beloved, though the new man in Christ must still face the first death, we all have to face the first death. We can face it head on with unwavering confidence and assurance. The reason being, we have an elder brother that we can point to, a Savior that we can look to, whose name is Jesus, who's gone before us as the captain of our faith, who through his death and resurrection has guaranteed for us the fullness of eternal life. And this is great news, my friends. John Chrysostom, the 4th century patristic, In his homily on this exact passage, he wrote this. What can be more unseemly 
than for a person who professes to be crucified to the world to tear his hair and shriek hysterically in the presence of death. Now, I, as I was reading this, I said, okay, that's a little too much. That's a bit harsh. Why do you have to say it like that? But hear him out. Again, what can be more unseemly than for a person, a believer, who professes to be crucified to the world to tear his hair and shriek hysterically in the presence of death? And he says this, those who are really worthy of being lamented over are the ones who are still in fear and trembling at the prospect of death and have no faith at all in the resurrection. And he drives home this point by ending with these words. He says, may God grant that you all depart this life unwailed. Unbelievers in this room tonight, your death without a Savior that's to come, in the words of Chrysostom, is much to be lamented over. A long life is not promised to you, but death is. Death is promised and is surely to come to each and every one of us in this room. Perhaps some of you might have said to yourselves that you'll come to Christ tomorrow or the next week or next month without ever realizing that God calls upon you to come to Him right now, to trust in Him right now, to follow Him this very moment. Death might be knocking on your door this very night. And it is now that you must come to Jesus to trust in the Son of God who became the Son of Man to die for your sins. And for those of us in here who have unbelieving family and friends, May we take this as a great warning to remain vigilant, to take upon ourselves with great urgency the proclamation of that gospel message which is the power of God unto salvation, to proclaim that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men, like sinners like you and me, would become sons of God. That Jesus died, not only that they might be adopted as sons in the Son, not only that they, may, they might be brought into God's glory, but that in the death of the Savior, that they might be free from sin and liberated from the bondage of the fear of death. Athanasius, in his work on the incarnation of the Word, he describes two results from the death of Jesus. He wrote, For by the sacrifice of his own body, Christ accomplished two things. First, he put an end to the law of death which barred our way. And he made a new beginning of life for us by giving us the hope of resurrection. By man, death has gained its power over men. But by the word made man, death has been destroyed and life raised up anew. Through his death, Jesus has bestowed upon us a blessing instead of a curse, joy instead of grief, a feast instead of mourning. The Son of God became the Son of Man to suffer, to die, and now lastly, on to our final point, to propitiate. Verse 17, we read, Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now whenever we talk about the work of Christ, it's especially important that as we see the death of Christ on the cross, that we recognize always that there are two parties involved, two parties to whom his work was directed. To the sinner, to God. There's a horizontal reality, a, a power effect work going on in relation to man, and a vertical one in relation to God. Hence the reason for why, and it might have come to your mind, but the reason why we read in 1 Timothy 2.5 that Jesus He's referred to as the mediator between God and man. With that being said, as we have already dealt with the horizontal aspect, 
in our second point in verses 14 to 16, we now look to the vertical relation in verse 17. We see here that the Son of God became the Son of Man to be made like his brethren so that he might be the high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And so the question that we need to ask and figure out is, why did Jesus have to become man in order to be the high priest to make propitiation for our sins? Why not just stay God? Why not just stay up there in his heavenly realm, heavenly throne as a divine son of God, indestructible, not incarnate? Why did he have to come down to do such a thing, to die? We find the answer in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. If you want to turn there real quick with me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. We read this in the middle of verse 26. He, namely Jesus, has appeared. Why? To put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of who? Himself. In other words, in reading Hebrews 9.26 into verse 17 of chapter 2, we can read and understand it like this. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and, and merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why? For what reason? So that he might offer up himself as a sacrifice. Meaning, if Jesus as the high priest, if he were to come in any other way, in any other form, apart from his humanity, we would all still be dead. We would all still be condemned right now. Why? Because there would no longer remain a sacrifice for our sins. While the blood of bulls and goats in chapter 9 are nothing more than temporary and futile measures in making right on behalf of sinful man, there is only one kind of bloodshedding that can, be complete, that can completely accomplish the work of atonement and take away sins. And that's the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. So the writer of Hebrews, in saying that Jesus had to be made like his brethren, is not only saying that the Son of God had to become the Son of Man to be our great high priest, but also to be able to lay down his own life as a physical sacrifice. Jesus, the great high priest, had to come in the form of man to make propitiation for the sins of his people by offering up himself as the sacrifice, you see. It's as if Jesus, as the great high priest, walked into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and rather than bringing with him the blood of a bull or, or of a goat, it's as if he lays upon himself, he lays himself upon the altar and he slays himself to be offered up as the true and final sacrifice of God. And friends, this is exactly what he did. The work of Christ his condescension, his life, his sufferings, his death and resurrection, it was not by chance, but it was predestined as far back as from eternity past. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that he might be the high priest, to, to be the high priest who not only makes an offering on behalf of his people, but also as the very offering that's being lifted up. And he did this as we read in verse 17. If you look down at verse 17 with me, he did all this to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now what in the world does that word mean propitiate it's even hard for me to say to propitiate propitiate Ugh. to propitiate in the context of law is to take away the wrath or judgment of the offended party it's to gain favor so in our case which is the gospel message here here now in our case god as the lawgiver who is infinitely just and holy has the good and right expectation that all people who or all people he created will love him 
should love him, honor him, and trust him, and obey him, and delight in him. Yet man, rather than worshiping God, and loving God, and obeying God, sinned and broke God's law. You guys know this. And because man broke God's law, therefore plunged, sin plunged all of mankind into condemnation. And the only solution to make right with God, his wrath and his judgment, is to deal with that guilt that was incurred by that sin. But the insurmountable problem that we run into here is that we can't. Why? Because an offense made and directed toward an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. And as finite creatures, we cannot repay so great a debt. Another way to put it, finite creatures cannot repay what is of infinite worth. Now many of you know where I'm going with this. There's only one person, capital P, who can repay such a debt. There's only one person who can take away the wrath of God, and that's the God-man, Jesus. Just as omnipotent power alone can restrain omnipotent power, just as God alone can restrain God alone, it is only God the Son who can satisfy the wrath of God the Father. And so instead of brushing everything under the rug, every sin, every wrong, every evil, every wrongdoing, which God can't because he's infinitely just, and rather than destroying everything, which he could have easily done, but for some reason, out of his great mystery, out of his love, he refrains. Rather than condemning all of mankind, which would have been right for him to do, what God does instead and what he says is, I love you so much, and I love my honor and justice so much that I will send forth my son as the great high priest to die for you, to make propitiation for you, to absorb my wrath. And this is exactly what we take place upon the cross on Calvary, where the culmination of God's love, love and justice meet, where the love and justice of God are completely met and satisfied. Oh, what a great news this is, beloved. What amazing, what an amazing Savior we have, do we not? Last week I read a quote from Anselm's work, Cur Deus Homo, which means why God became man. And I wanted to read it again because I, I just think it's so helpful in understanding everything what I'm trying to say here. He writes, It would not have been right for the restoration of human nature to be left undone. Why? Because God is infinitely just. And it could not have been done unless man paid for what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed that debt, only God can pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus, it was necessary for God to take upon himself manhood into the unity of his person so that he, namely fallen humanity, who in his own nature ought to pay and could not, should be found in a person who could. The life of this man is Jesus. The life of this man, Jesus, was so sublime, so precious, that it cannot suffice to pay what is owing for the sins of the world and infinitely more. And oh, how true those words are. Why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? He did so to be the great high priest who would offer up himself as a sacrifice, his own life to make propitiation for the sins of those who he would call his brothers. Why did God become man? Because it was fitting for Jesus to suffer with men in order to suffer for men. And it is through his suffering as our great high priest, verse 18, who then provides help for us when we too are suffering. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that he might take upon himself humanity to suffer for his people, to die for his people, 
and to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Beloved church, it was like you, like me, that he became. And it was for you and me that he died. It was with you that he sympathizes with you now, knowing very well your every struggle. And praise be to God that we have such a great Savior, do we not, in Christ Jesus. As we ran out of time, I want to quickly end by reciting a hymn that I think does a beautiful job in summarizing everything. And the hymn is called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And after I read this, we'll come to the Lord in prayer. It reads like this. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He who glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our precious redeemer, shepherd friend. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O precious Savior, we confess that before you and left to ourselves, we are nothing but vanity. But praise be to God that we see Christ. Not do we only see Christ, but we look to Christ who is our dear captain and our forerunner and our, the author of our salvation. As we continue to reflect upon why the Son of God became the Son of Man, to suffer, to die, to be our great high priest, to make propitiation for our, our sins on our behalf, may his shed blood Make us more thankful for his mercy. May it make us more humble under your correction. More zealous in thy service. More watchful against temptations. More contended in our circumstances. And more useful to others for your kingdom and for your glory alone. We lift all these things in the name of Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Together with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit. One God, eternally, forevermore. Amen.